Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. We're happy to have in studio someone very familiar to NPR audiences, author and political commentator Koki Roberts. She's in town for an evening event at the Missouri History Museum where she'll be discussing the influence of pioneering women in America. She's with me in studio to talk about them, those women, and other things. Koki, welcome. So nice to be with you. Let's start with the other things. <laughs> other things. <laughs> and I frankly don't know where to start. But what, what do you make of just this week in the Trump presidency? This week has been phenomenal. Uh, watching that press conference in Helsinki was one of the most remarkable moments of many of our lives, uh, where we just had our jaws dropping. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the president comes back and tries to clean it up when he sees the reaction of his own party. And but he but he keeps restating, and we've seen this pattern now over and over and over again, where the president will say something, then he'll walk it back somewhat, then he'll double down. Um, so you don't really know where it is, and of course, what everybody continues to wonder is what does Vladimir Putin have that seems to make Donald Trump so nervous, and um, that's a very serious question. Indeed, and the speculation is not helpful to no. anybody in trying to figure out what this is all what this is all about. You know, the New York Times is carrying a story that was given much attention on cable news last night, saying that the president was advised, I think it was the 7th of January, two weeks before the inauguration, that uh, Vladimir Putin, they had uh, the intelligence directly. leaders directly involved in this. You're familiar with the story. You know, um, some people say this would be evidence of some sort of criminal complicity because if he continues to say there is no <laughs> collusion going on and there has been. Well, the problem is, first of all, he's, he, he can't separate collusion from Russian interference. There can be massive Russian interference without collusion. Mm-hmm. and uh, But he's so convinced that this is all about delegitimizing his presidency that he can't go with the facts. It's either that or there is something else, and we don't know what the something else is. Uh, but the, the story in The Times is very detailed, actually, for an intelligence story, mm-hmm. um, that he was shown facts and figures and, and intercepts and all of that. Uh, apparently, part of the reason that he grudgingly accepted it, as they say, um, is that he didn't trust the briefers. Uh, John Brennan and James Clapper, because they were Obama Obama appointees. Well, you know, that's not the way national security works, uh, or never has anyway. There's always been a transition. Um, But since uh, his transition team didn't even want to learn how to turn on the lights in the White House, literally, um, it was a very rocky um, transition. You have to wonder what uh, someone like Brennan and Comey and others were thinking when they were watching this uh, this duo in Helsinki with that joint news conference. Well, Comey immediately did yeah. respond and basically say, vote Democratic, mm-hmm. which, of course, plays right into the president's hands. Sure. But um, And Brennan responded by saying, you know, traitor. Treason, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so we, it was quite dramatic. Um, what's interesting to me, Don, is watching the Republicans um, because now for two years— um, people who are Republican thinkers, people like George Will and David Brooks mm-hmm. and Michael Gerson, have been saying, and Charles Krauthammer when he was alive, have been saying somebody in the Republican Party has to 
call the guy out, you know, say what he is saying is not true. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they don't do it. And they, and they continue not to do it. Even this week, after their initial response on Helsinki, they all clammed up and, and walked back. And they're not going to do anything. Well, I think of John McCain, who did say right. something, and he's the only one. But he's course, dying. He's dying, yeah. But he called uh, it a disgraceful right. moment in the American presidency. Right. Um, but, of course, Donald Trump hasn't exactly been kind to John McCain. No, <laughs> going way back to the early, right. early parts of the campaign. What is the potential political impact here? Clearly, the Republicans are not saying anything. They're, they're worried about being reelected, obviously. Right. The only ones speaking are those who are retiring. Retiring, exactly. <laughs> Profiles and courage. <laughs> this guy's got some Teflon going for him. And Absolutely. And November is still a couple of months away. Oh, I, you know, I am one who's been saying all along. First of all, I predicted Trump would be president all along, and everybody kept thinking, oh, poor dear, she's passed it. Uh, but then. Uh, I, I am I am not looking at congressional elections and seeing a blue wave mm-hmm. at this moment. Mm-hmm. Now, it is true that in primaries, Democrats have shown up more than Republicans, and there is a certain amount of energy on the Democratic side. But the combination of the fact that so many seats are just absolutely mm-hmm. safe because of the way district lines are drawn, and the economy is humming along uh, – I, when that's the case, you don't normally see a big change. Mm-hmm. There was a spark of light for many in the election in uh, New York City of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is, of course, a democratic socialist. What do you see in her election? Well, a, a few things. First of all, uh, Joe Crowley, the man she defeated, mm-hmm. had not done his homework. He was not in the district. He didn't show up for a debate. Uh, he sent his Hispanic outreach person. He he didn't do uh, what any member of Congress should do, which is tend to the home fires, uh, because he was ambitious about the leadership. And you know, he's hardly the first person to be in that position. But um, but uh, and he might and he won't be the last. Joe Lieberman, the uh, former Democratic senator, now independent from Connecticut. Uh, has an op-ed in today's Wall Street Journal uh, saying that Democrats should vote for Crowley anyway in the general election because his name's on the ballot in something, you know, like the Workers' Party or something. Mm-hmm. New York has multiple parties with names on ballots. And um, that would be a real disaster because there is tremendous excitement around this young woman. Mm-hmm. And um, she really – she did do her homework. She went door to door and she energized people and and said, you know, you don't see people like me running. I mean in some ways it's a Trumpian campaign because it's, you know, clean up the swamp. It's all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, fewer than 5 percent of the eligible voters voted in that primary. And that is the story of primaries, as you know, Don. Um, sure. So what happens is that the true believers show up and nobody else does. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's what happened in that primary. But it's also true that he blew it. Yeah. Well, she's coming to town this weekend oh, good. to, to uh, campaign for a candidate who is much like her uh-huh. and running against a well-established 20-year congressional veteran. So we'll see. Well, the, they need to, you know, they, they really do need to, these congressional veterans really do need to be sure that they're paying attention to their voters. You know, my father was uh, in the leadership of Congress. Sure. And um, when he voted for the 1968 um, uh, civil rights bill on housing, open housing bill, 
uh, it was almost a political suicide. And um, and he had the closest election of anybody in the Congress that year in 1968. Um, but the fact is that uh, he did go home, and especially my mother went home, and uh, and they spent a huge amount of time educating people because Congress people can be leaders if they want to be, and uh, and they can bring their voters along even if the voters don't necessarily start out there. Yeah. This whole issue of intestinal fortitude is mind-boggling, as we've already discussed, the fact that no one does have the, the gumption to, to stand up. Well, a lot of it does have to do with this primary process um, sure. because since the districts are so safely drawn by the state legislatures, the challenge you get is not from the other party. It's inside your own party. And the only way you get challenged is if you're not pure enough, mm -hmm. either on the left as a Democrat or right as a Republican. I had a very interesting experience um, in George W. Bush's presidency uh, where out of the blue, I got a phone call from Dana Perino, the press secretary. Mm -hmm. And I don't cover the White House. you know. And she said, the president wants to know if you would like to ride with him in the limousine out to Andrews Air Force Base to meet Pope Benedict. And I said, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> Being the good Catholic yeah, girl I'll, you I'll are. clear the schedule. <laughs> and so it was totally cool, of course. You know, you get in the limousine with the president, first lady, and Jenna. And uh, it's a quick trip because they move quickly. But um, mm. he wanted to talk to me about why he was breaking precedent and going to meet the Pope mm. instead of the Pope coming to the White House, as is normally the case. And he was talking about the moral authority of the Pope and all that. So then I started asking him about the um, the church in America. And at that point, uh, the bishops had lobbied very strenuously for immigration reform. Mm. And he said, and I'm quoting him here, he said, Koki, I tried and tried and tried to get my party to do the right thing on immigration, mm -hmm. and I couldn't succeed because of the way district lines are drawn. Um, people are just too afraid of a challenge from the right. Do you think, while we're talking about uh, George W. Bush, that he gets a bad rap to a lot of people? He looks pretty good right well, now. Well, I was, I was, <laughs> the other day I was listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and some actor from West Wing was on. I don't know the actor's name, and he said, George W. Bush is looking like Abby Hoffman these <laughs> days. Of course, of course, for you younger people, uh, he was a, a radical in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, go, going back to 19, uh, 1968. Again. Right. But, but do you think he does get uh, a bad rap? I mean, Well, the war in Iraq yeah, is the yeah. thing that, you know, sticks with everyone, and it's still, of course, plaguing us. Uh, I think he genuinely believed that there were weapons of mass destruction, and you have to keep in mind it was after September 11th. Um, everybody believed there were weapons of mass destruction. I know when my mother was ambassador to the Vatican uh, that uh, Pope John Paul wanted to go to Iraq, and the Americans, and this was during the Clinton administration, um, basically said, don't do it, uh, you know, don't prop up Saddam, essentially. And they showed uh, what they believed to be weapons of mass destruction, and this is the Clinton administration. So I think he genuinely believed that, and, um, and I think he also did have, and this is where you certainly can fault him, a, a naive view of the ability to 
create, you know, democracy around the world. Um, now, that naive view carries over because um, you saw it through Arab Spring, you know, where people thought, oh, this is going to be a wonderful flowering of, of democracy or at least freedoms. And I kept saying it looks like winter for women to me. But um, but it is, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hope rather than a reality. Of course, those weapons of mass destruction uh, and the fact none were found right. is being used by the current president to just discredit Everything. our intelligence agencies in particular. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Well, I mean, even before that, uh, our intelligence agencies were um, overestimating the Soviet Union um, and thinking that its economic power was far, far greater than it was. And by the way, Don, that's another thing. You know, Russia is a third-rate country. Its economy is less than that of most of our states. And uh, elevating it to this uh, position of being equal to the United States is, in my view, just an enormous mistake. And again, speaking of Russia and taking us back to today, we've got this uh, young woman, the Maria Butina. <laughs> right, who is, straight out uh, of a spy novel. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the stuff that John le Carré and others right. have been writing about for a long time. Well, and the wonderful uh, show, The Americans. I mean, this is what she, she is absolutely straight out of that program. I mean, yeah. including uh, the allegations yesterday in court that she was offering sex for information. Well, that's what... The Americans is all about, you know. Right. We're talking with Koki Roberts, who is a political commentator, as you well know. We have to take a break. We'll do that now and come back and continue this conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. We are back again with Koki Roberts, political commentator well known to NPR listeners and well-known to uh, people in this country for a good many years now. For good her work many with years. A- it's a nice way of saying a- she's old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can get away with saying, <laughs> with saying that. Anyway, let's come back to, to your, your stay here in St. Louis. We'll do some of the other things as well. But uh, you mentioned the opportunity to visit Pope Benedict. You're very active in, in Catholic circles today, aren't you? Mainly with the religious of the Society of the Sacred Heart, uh, who raised me and remain my very good friends. Um, but uh, also with other women religious. Um, uh, I feel very much in solidarity with them. Uh, They are the people working on the margins of society in this country and really uh, working in the footsteps of Jesus. And um, I love them. Good work that they are doing. And it kind of looks like more organizations like that are going to have to be doing those good works because we're doing so little of it on the national level. But, you know, that's part of what I'll be talking about tonight because um, the person who we're here to celebrate is Philippine Duchenne, who arrived here in 1818, so it's the bicentennial. And um, she 
within weeks after this, within a week, actually, after this horrendous voyage and all of that, set up the first free school west of the Mississippi. I mean, think of it. French woman, mm-hmm. you know, wh- where was she? She was on Mars, and uh, she's she's able to do that. And really, that's what happened in this country. It was women who uh, sewed together the social safety net because there certainly wasn't any government involved. It really took until the Civil War for that to happen. And, um, and they, with no legal rights, no political rights, no anything – set up the orphanages and the schools, particularly for girls, and the, uh, the fuel societies and the poor houses and all of that. And I'm not saying that that's what should happen, but that's what did happen. Mm-hmm. And so we have a long tradition of it. And, I mean, de Tocqueville wrote about how, um, you know, in America they have all of these associations that do things that in other countries the bureaucracy or the monarchy would do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it is part of our American tradition. I think what tends to work best is when we have a private-public partnership uh, because then you have the commitment and the resources of the public uh, along with the smarts and the the savvy of the private. Looking at women and the role they played in our early days, and you've written about this and found in most, <laughs> yes, you have, and very well, so most well, informative. But, but looking back to the day, you know, the revolutionary women and the fact that they were, if there was a women's live movement before the most recent one, that was it. Right. Uh, they were very, very involved in politics, and people are amazed to hear that, but mm. that's the case. Um, I mean, Abigail Adams was just furious that the Continental Congress kept sort of equivocating about independence. And she kept saying, you know, this is ridiculous. I want, wish to hear that you have declared an independency. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, several other women were on that page. and write, I mean, I only know the ones who wrote about mm-hmm. it. I'm sure many of them talked about it. Um, and uh, they they understood that this was not working out with England. And then they, um, and of course in Abigail Adams' case, she was eager that the new government remember the ladies, famously. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact that they were such dedicated patriots is really amazing because, again, think about life at the, in the 18th century. You know, it, just getting through the day was really hard. And at the end of a long day of, of farming and raising children and trying to collect on her husband's uh, legal fees while he's off thinking great thoughts in the Congress, um, and oh, by the way, the British are coming, um, you know, Abigail Adams would sit down by candlelight and write these thoughtful letters about the country. And you just think, how did she do it? Wasn't she just exhausted, you know? But um, but they did it, and they cared. And at one point, she actually said to John, you know, we women are really better patriots than you men because um, because we are suffering all the hardships and making all the sacrifices for the cause. And if we win, you will be held in high regard and acclaim, and we won't even be able to vote. So we're better patriots. And he, he agreed. It took 
took 130, 140 it's years ridiculous. to get the right It to is vote ridiculous. We are that. about to celebrate the centennial in, in 2020. That is just nuts, but that's how long it took. Why did it take so long? Because I mean, men don't like to give up power. <laughs> <laughs> it's not complicated. Oh, sure. Blame it on the men. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, well, they're the people who had the votes. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's funny. I, I, uh, I talked with uh, someone from the Danforth uh, Institute uh-huh. on Religion and Politics the other day, Marie Griffith. And we were talking about uh, Phyllis Schlafly, mm-hmm. who th- she thinks was one of the most important women she of the was 20th indeed. century. And she points out that she you know, put politics and religion in the same basket. And what she did was make men afraid that you know, their, their home and hearth was going to be disrupted. <laughs> the same, it's the same kind of thing that goes back to Abigail Adams, right. I'm sure. I'm sure. Right. Uh, now, Phyllis Schlafly was uh, very, v- very influential. A woman of the 20th century. I, I happen to disagree with her uh, on the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, very much so. Uh, but um, but she she was a political organizer par excellence. Um, and, you know, religion and politics in the same basket. What I would say about that is fine. Uh, just don't uh, don't distort religion. You know, if you're if you're claiming to be a Christian, then pay attention to what Jesus said. I saw a sign in Washington the other day, WWJD, which is usually, what would Jesus do with this one, said, who would Jesus deport? Uh-huh. And, of course, uh-huh. the answer is no one. Yeah. Phyllis Schlafly, I'm just advised here, is also a Sacred Heart graduate. Is that right? Yes. I'm getting the yes from Sister Hughes. Um, yes. So, uh, well, see, she learned she learned how to organize. <laughs> What about uh, the year of the woman? We hear a lot about that. Uh, do you buy into that? Is this? Oh, I've such bought a into year? it so embarrassingly over the years, um, because every few years we would declare the year of the woman, and then it would fizzle. Uh, I remember in 1990, <clears throat> there were a group of very, very good Republican women, uh, House members, running for the Senate. And so we thought, you're the woman. Uh, And then Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And the issues that uh, shifted from um, education, health, things that people think of as womanly, uh, to national security, which people don't think of as womanly. And and so most of those women were defeated. Um, Then 1992 comes along. And we see a bunch of women running, this time on the Democratic side. And we declare the year of the woman again. And that year really did happen. More women were elected that year than had been elected in the history of Congress. And so, um, and since then, we've seen gradual uh, incremental uh, progress along that front so that now we have, what, 21 women in the Senate and um, about a 19 percent to 20 percent percentage in the House. Enormous number of women running Enormous this number, year. more than ever before in history, mm-hmm. uh, and a tremendous amount of excitement among um, about them, uh, a lot of them young women, a lot of them veterans, um, and they're telling their stories in very different ways from the way we've traditionally seen women candidates tell their stories. Uh, because of what I just said, you know, women candidates felt that they they couldn't seem too soft. And, um, and I remember when Pat Schroeder was running, she was one of the first to run with small children still at home. And people would say to her, well, what about the children? Who's going to take care of the children? And, you know, as far as I know, no male candidate has ever been asked that question, even though most of them are, in fact, fathers. Um, 
And she would do this whole routine of, oh, the children. The children are fine. They got up in the morning, and Jim and I give them a hearty, wonderful breakfast. And then we put them in the freezer. (laughs) (laughs) We we go to work, and we come home, and we defrost (laughs) them. And and she thought humor could fix it, and it didn't. (laughs) You know, people are still asking that question. But these young women running today are bringing their babies out, nursing them in ads, um, basically saying, this is who I am. I'm a mom. I'm a veteran. I'm uh, a contributor to the community. And, you know, take me. What do they bring to the table that men don't? Oh, a tremendous amount. Uh, First of all, first of all, (laughs) it's more than half of the population. So let's, let's be represented. But uh, what my mother discovered when she went to Congress, and she was one of 16 when she went to Congress, um, was that uh, women come to you uh, when they don't go to male members of Congress and tell you the things that need fixing. Uh, in that particular era, the huge thing was health care and pension reform because if a man um, left you, either by death or taking up with a chippy, um, the... Um, that, that would, happens in that, politics? I know. No, I mean in society. Yeah. Uh, a woman would be left high and dry mm-hmm. and uh, often not have access to his pension. And if she were in her 50s, she had had no health care. And um, so women in Congress were apprised of that and, and worked to fix it. And that's where COBRA came from and all of that and pension reform. But um, – that's true, by the way, of minorities in Congress as well. If you're an Asian American, the Asian Amer- you don't just represent your district. The Asian Americans all over the country come to you, and same with Hispanics and African Americans. But um, uh, women do bring the concerns of women and children and families to the fore. Not that the men don't care. They don't place as high a priority on it. Well, women are natural nurturers, number one. You hear that a lot. Number two, they are more likely to compromise. That is absolutely true because they're much more practical and less ideological. We've seen this in state legislatures over the years. For a long time, we did not have the ability to really measure it in Congress other than anecdotally because there weren't enough women members of Congress. But now we can. And uh, really, the last bastion of bipartisanship in the Congress is among the women of the Senate, and they have a regular dinner together, and um, they work on legislation together. And even when they differ, as Claire McCaskill, your senator, did with Kirsten Gillibrand about military justice, it is the most civilized difference. You know, they really do have a, a very um, reasoned debate. And the men all say, isn't that nice, you know, um, but don't follow suit. Um, Now, that's not true of every woman, obviously. There's some very radical women on both sides, particularly in the House. Uh, But in general, what we have seen in legislative bodies is that women across the aisle more often than men Um, that they are more, as I say, more pragmatic, less ideological, particularly, again, when it comes to issues of women, children, Mm -hmm. and families. The men used to socialize. They used to have dinner together. Absolutely. When I was growing up, everybody socialized. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, My last interview with Jerry Ford, he said to me, Cokie, and this is long before it got as bad as it is now, he said, I don't understand what's going on in Washington. 
He said, when your dad was majority leader and I was minority leader, we would get in a cab together, go downtown to someplace like the press club and say, okay, what are we going to argue about? He said, it was a legitimate debate. We really did disagree about means to an end mainly. And he said, and, and it was partisan. For heaven's sakes, we were the head of our parties in the House of Representatives. He said, but then we'd get back in the cab and be best friends. Yeah. And that was really true. Um, and the difference, there are lots of reasons for the difference, and one having to do with the fact they had all World War II veterans and understood who the real enemy was. Mm-hmm. But partly, um, there was a sense that everybody was in it together and that, yes, your opponent was your opponent who might be wrongheaded, but he was not your enemy who was evil. And that's the atmosphere today. I think back in, in Missouri to the days of Tom Eagleton and John Danforth. Right. Now that, that's a pretty good example of the kind of thing that you're Although, talking about. Although, you know, about. Roy Blunt <clears throat> and uh, the most recent Clay, who is— <laughs> Lacey Clay, <laughs> William Clay Jr., yeah. Yeah, uh, tend to be friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do have some of that. And often you have— people in a delegation Mm -hmm. coming together to work for the state in some particular instance. By the way, uh, Clay is the one who is being challenged and the reason that uh, Cortez is coming coming into town. I want to go back to the women thing again because I'm interested in your take on the treatment of Theresa May. uh, Wasn't that uh, just unbelievable? You go to a country and trash the prime minister. What a good idea. Mm. And, and endorse a potential successor right. at, at some right. point. Well, that whole episode over there in Europe with the uh, kind of turning on, on NATO, I mean, it just it's just – that happened a week or so ago. I know. It's almost like ancient history. I know. Well, what it is is an ignorance of history. And, of course, the whole country suffers from that, And um, which is one of the reasons it's wonderful to be here celebrating Philippine and the other women um, to talk about that history. But – Uh, The NATO alliance is the most successful alliance in the history of humankind. And when you look back and remember the 19th century, or 18th and 19th centuries, when France and Britain read each other's throats for the entire century, and and then we had two massive world wars in the 20th century, um, the fact that Europe has been at peace uh, from the formation of NATO on is just a remarkable accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And um, and now to have uh, this bear growling around the edges of NATO is very, very worrisome. Yeah. Do you think that the interpreter during the uh, Helsinki summit should be forced, encouraged, made to no, testify? No, I don't, but I'd love to hear what she has to no, say. What, what you all, absolutely. <laughs> no. I mean, that's really... Uh, imposing on a role uh, that should not be, it should be what it is that you are. And it is, by the way, you do have top secret clearance as an interpreter. Um, so, you know, she probably can't can't reveal. Um, but um, but I would love to hear what she has to say. <laughs> there was a, a, a White House, former White House stenographer. Right, on who was... Uh, did you see that? Right. Yes, yeah. I did. Well, that was interesting because it, my interpretation of what she was saying was that... Uh, the president doesn't want a record right. of, of what he does about anything, really. Well, we haven't seen his tax returns, have we? No, of course not. Of course not. Right. What's your uh, bottom line on the American public's reaction <laughs> to all of this? Well, unfortunately, we remain a very, very polarized society, and there are lots of reasons for that. Um, 
uh, and we in the media bear some responsibility for it, giving our microphones to the loudest shouters and having whole channels that are just one viewpoint and uh, echo chambers. Uh, but um, the uh, the fact is that uh, Donald Trump is going to hold a strong core of supporters regardless of what he does. And the effect of that is to have Republicans um, very concerned about that core of supporters in terms of their own uh, political futures. So I don't see a change, you know, a big change anytime soon. Now, that could be completely wrong. It, there, something could happen that really finally people say that's that's it. That's too much. But what would it be if it's not standing on a stage with Vladimir Putin and saying it's America's fault? We have to take another break. We'll do that at, uh, at this time. We're talking with Koki Roberts, political commentator and uh, a person you hear often on National Public Radio. Back to continue this conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back as we continue our conversation with uh, Koki Roberts. Koki, a long uh, tradition of politics in your family. Were you ever enticed to uh, think about running for office? You know, I feel really guilty that I never did. Um, I'm the only member of my original nuclear family not to run for the House. Um, Now, they didn't all win. The only person who never lost an election was my mother. But um, uh, I have a great uh, respect for the people who put themselves on the line and serve the public. And I think most members of Congress uh, do have public service in mind. I might disagree with their form, their concept of it, but I think that is the case. Um, but my husband, who I met when I was 18, uh, was always going to be a journalist. And it would have been a little hard on him if I had gone mm-hmm. into politics. Um, so uh, I feel like at least I've somewhat done my part by trying to um, describe what's going on, elucidate it for the American people, and um, make voters more educated. I wonder if uh, today's younger people are being turned off at all by what is going on and what they're watching. And I mean, they have their own problems in terms of college debt and right. The jobs. college debt issue yeah. is huge. Yeah, but I wonder if they're being turned off to politics. Although we do have a lot of women running this time, which is different. Actually, what we're seeing in the polling is that they are more interested than they have been in recent years. Activism is way up. Members of Congress are reporting that they're getting much more um, input, uh, whether they want it or not, uh, from the voters. And so um, I think young people, at least at the moment, have a sense that they can make a difference. I hope they hold on to that. I was so impressed by those Parkland kids. I mean, they were so out there and wonderful. And I loved their conversations with politicians because they'd say to some politician, you know, we are your children and we are dying. Mm -hmm. And the politician would say, well, I'm a co-sponsor of Bill Number 5678, you know, and just gobbledygook. And these kids would just look at him and say, you know, but we are your children and we are dying. Do something. And I, you know, I I don't think they're going to go away. 
at the same time they were being accused of being oh, cri- I know. crisis actors. I know. You say you don't think they're going to go away, but sustaining that kind of it's energy. It's very hard. It's very hard. Mm-hmm. But if you've watched a whole bunch of your classmates die, it gives you a certain amount of courage. What about the media? We're all part of that. and uh, You mean the, the enemy of the people? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, we fake news of the people. Uh, what about its role today? I actually think um, that uh, people in the media, by and large, have stepped up to the plate. I mean, you know, the American institutions are very important, but they're not in, impenetrable. And uh, so it's very important to not let the attacks on the courts or the Department of Justice or the intelligence community or the Congress or the media take hold. Uh, But the only way we can do that is to be as careful as we can possibly be um, to not get anything wrong, uh, but also to um, to be on it, to just um, call out things that are inaccurate or or falsehoods, um, and I think people have been doing that. I think people who, at one point, were kind of mailing it in, are really on top of it these days. You know, I think of uh, and he's been criticized for this. Anderson Cooper of CNN was criticized the other day because after watching the Helsinki News Conference, just said words to the effect, "This is the worst example of." diplomacy, whatever, that I have ever seen. Is that something that an Anderson Cooper should be saying? Would Walter Cronkite have said something like that? (laughs) Walter Cronkite definitely would have. But, um, you know, it's all a question of what role are you playing. Um, If you are in an anchor position, as he is, um, and your news organization feels strongly, as ours does, um, that an anchor does not uh, express any viewpoints, then that was an inappropriate thing to say. Um, if you are in more of an analytical role, um, as some anchors are, um, and most analysts, all analysts are, um, then it's a, you know it's a fair thing to say. I mean, it really is a question of of what role you're playing. On the other hand, it was Chris Wallace who was interviewing the president and was asking tougher questions of uh, of Putin than. Uh, then uh, who's interviewing Putin, excuse me, uh, asking tougher questions than our own president apparently did. Well, I mean, it, the the Putin-Trump thing, as we said at the beginning, is just mysterious. Hmm. Have you been paying any attention at all to the McCaskill race here? In this I, I, you know, no. glancing attention to it. Uh, obviously, she is, people don't talk about it so much, um, as much as... Um, uh, the North Dakota and uh, West Virginia uh, uh, races, but in uh, Indiana, but um, she she's a red state Democrat at the moment, uh, and uh, she's going to have to fight her way into reelection if she gets there. We have, uh, but she's a savvy politician. Oh, absolutely is, is. and she has a lot of money. Uh, Always helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not dispositive. <clears throat> yeah. uh, I mean, you've had candidate after candidate who outs in the Crowley race in New York. He had 10 times as much money as she did, maybe 100 times as much money as she did, and um, she won. Yeah. Vice President Pence is in town today. Right. And um, I was sort of struck by the fact that it was he and and uh, Secretary of State Pompeo who apparently talked the president into go- coming back out and clarifying the would-wouldn't comments that, uh, that he made about that uh, about his remarks. Well, you know, both of those men are seasoned politicians, and um, 
they understand when a firestorm is happening. And that's what was happening. And it was among people in their own party. And I'm sure that they got, I mean, I I'm, I don't have the evidence in front of me, but knowing politics as I do, um, that they got calls in on their own from people in the party saying, you got to fix this. Yeah. And apparently John Kelly has been making telephone calls trying to uh, assuage some of our allies uh, overseas. Timing. It's it's a you know it's a tough time. Yeah. Time is winding down, and you have a full day ahead of you. But what is ahead aside after today for Cokie Roberts? Well, uh, today I I have the wonderful opportunity to go to St. Charles, where Philippine Duchenne uh, set up that first school, and where she uh, lived and died, and then on to uh, Florissant, where she spent most of her life. So I'm very eager to do that. Uh, but then for the for the rest, uh, you know, I keep doing what I'm doing, and um, I'm working on a book about uh, suffrage uh, geared, geared to the 100th uh, anniversary. Uh, didn't you say your daughter also? She, my daughter wrote a book about suffrage, yes. She's my guide. <laughs> the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, apparently. Well, she's a fabulous apple. And your husband, uh, Stephen, is is someone that most of our listeners are familiar with because he's on from right. time to time. But uh, how is he doing? He's great. He's got two new knees back on the tennis court, and he teaches at George Washington, which he loves, and spends a huge amount of time with his students and ex-students. He gets them all jobs, gets them all married, and uh, and uh, he's he's a happy man. It is a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you, Koki Roberts. I'll let uh, the audience know that uh, you're appearing tonight at the Missouri History Museum, 7 o'clock, discussing Extending America's Promise, Pioneering Women. It's part of the museum's Crossing Frontiers lecture series. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you, Don. Thanks so much.